0: Well, peace be with you. And also with you. Well, we are journeying through the book of Esther in this uh, latest teaching series, and one of the main themes is providence, perhaps the biggest theme. Now, what is providence? So providence, according to theologian John Calvin, is the invisible hand of God, the invisible hand of God moving and and, and guiding and directing and providing for his people through the ups and downs of of life. Can we discern providence of God working? And this story is one of the places where we see that to be so. Now, there's a man named William Perkins, and he was a very well-known theologian. And uh, this is quite a long time ago. Um, but uh, Perkins was well-known, and he was a theologian of theologians. He, he was so respected that, that he taught younger pastors and, and teachers, but it was not always that case, always that way. right? So when he was younger, he had a reputation for recklessness for profanity, and for public drunkenness, okay? And he's kind of like a student age, so think kind of early university, college age. Not only that, but he had an interest in black magic and the occult. So bad things, don't do them. They bring evil and demonic, you know, the demonic into your life, and to the life of your loved ones. Anyway, this was his life. Anyway, he just is out, you know, one evening, and he's going around, and he's just kind of... Uh, doing the sort of things that William Perkins would do on a Saturday night. So it's evening, but he just so happens to come across a woman who's getting her, her son in trouble. Getting her son in trouble, chastising him. Now, now she doesn't see Perkins, and, uh, but Perkins just so happens to hear the way that she is chastising her child. And she says, "'Hey, you don't want to grow up and become like drunken Perkins.'" And he's like, "'What?' So how, how bad is it in my life that, that some total stranger who doesn't even know me is chastising their own child to not be like me? You don't wanna grow up and become like drunken Perkins. Like, wow. So <clears throat> that was a key moment in his life because he kinda turned it around. And he realized what, it, how, that is how horrible things are. And so he, he repented of his sin, he got out of his interest in black magic and the occult, he turned his life around, he, he gave his life to Jesus, he eventually uh, went to seminary, became a pastor, a, a theologian of theologians, insofar that he left his mark on a new generation of thinkers and he became personally known for his integrity and his Christ-likeness. Now, can we see providence in this situation? What are the chances that he just so happens to be there at night overhearing a complete stranger chastising their child to say, don't become like drunken Perkins. He was just so, you know, in in the right place at the right time. Coincidence or providence? Providence. And I think this is a helpful example because sometimes it's easy to believe in providence when everything's going good. Like, hey, oh yeah, an appointment got canceled and I had an extra two hours to study for algebra and I got a better mark. Yay, providence. But what about when life is messy? Uh, What about when we feel like we've just engaged in sin and we're so far up the creek and we're not sure if people are ever going to forgive us or things are just catastrophic for another reason, they're less than ideal, maybe we've been short-sighted and we're dealing with long-term consequences, maybe we feel like in some sort of trench warfare uh, for something very important in our lives and things are, are very challenging. What about those moments? Does God stand back? Or is God still a God of powerful love and providence, even in the stickiness, even when things... Are very messy. And let me tell you, as we get into this part of the story of Esther, things are getting very messy. Uh, we also said at the start of the series that there are moments through the story where things start to, to seem kind of morally ambiguous. We are wading into that territory, and yet God is the God of providence. How does God work in these types of situations? Does God work in our lives even when we are in the trenches? All right, so we're going to open up the text to uh, Esther chapter 8. All right, We've all, we're already at, almost at the end of the, of the book. But what I'm going to do before we jump into the text is just provide a bit of a recap for the first seven chapters in case you've missed a Sunday or two. But it also kind of helps us hit the road running uh, on today's text. So we began in the Persian court of King Ahasuerus in the 5th century uh, BC. Uh, this is in Persia. Uh, after a long and surely torturous process, Esther, a young Jewish woman, was promoted to queen. Esther was the adoptive daughter of Mordecai. Mordecai uncovered a plot to assassinate the king. One day, the king made a law that people should bow to someone he has promoted to second in command in the kingdom, Haman. turns out the ancestors of Haman and Mordecai were enemies, the Amalekites and the Jews. Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. So Haman devises a plot to kill not only Haman, but all the Jews, and he did this by getting the king to pass a law to this effect. Mordecai urged Esther to use her influential position as queen to get the king to change his mind. Well, it's risky business unless the king invites her. She could lose her life, but she agrees, and in an act of great courage, she goes to him, if I perish, I perish. Remember that? Uh, The king, thankfully, receives her favorably. Esther hosts two banquets for the king and his second-in-command, Haman. Before the second banquet, the king can't sleep. He asks for the royal records to be read. Thereby, he remembers uh, that uh, Mordecai saved his life from the assassination plot. Also in the meantime, Haman becomes more enraged at Mordecai, builds a huge 75-foot pole on which to bloodily impale him. At the banquet, the second banquet, Esther requests that her life and the life of her people be saved because they have been scheduled for annihilation by none other than Haman himself. The king is upset and has Haman impaled on the pole that Haman himself constructed for Mordecai and the blood flows. Yes, things are messy. So that's where we are as we begin chapter 8, reading from the ESV. On that day, uh, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. So, um, gives her her the house. This is like the household and the property. And it wasn't uncommon in in the ancient world for when someone commits a crime like this for what they have their property to revert back to the crown and it to be redistributed. That's what's going on. Verse 2, and the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So Haman is elevated. Uh, in, sorry, Mordecai is elevated to the position previously held by Haman, uh, but Esther has done this, right? She's used her, her authority as queen. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king." For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, the pole, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please." With regard to the Jews, in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king, and sealed with the king's ring, cannot be revoked. Okay, so quick pause. So uh, now that Mordecai has the signet ring, and he has risen to the place of Haman, there's this tension in the text. And the tension is in the story, as we find here, is that apparently a royal law can't be revoked. And so yes, Haman is impaled on the pole, but... But the law is still in effect. So that's the tension in in the plot line of the story. Um, Not only that, but I think we continue to see something troubling about the king's character. He's influential, he's powerful, and he's impressionable. He says to Mordecai, hey, you know, do do what you want. So he continues to be cavalier and casual with his own power. That's what got him into trouble in the first place, right? But that's what's happening, and that's the tension in the story. Verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Savan, which is late spring, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps, the governors, and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script in their language. So... Something is going to be sent out to everybody, and it should be in their own dialect so they can understand what is happening, okay? Verse 10, and he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Okay, so here we see how Mordecai is going to try to deal with this, okay? So they've chosen a single day which is uh, in our modern reckoning in our calendars, so they don't use it in the Hebrew, but some of your Bible translations will put it in our calendars, which is March 7th. So it's one day that exactly corresponds to the day of the original kill annihilation order. So the idea is, okay, if that first law can't be revoked, then what we're going to do is, is we're going to make a second law where the Jews can defend themselves. Okay, so this is where things are starting to get really interesting, really messy. Um, I also just want to make a note here that this, uh, this kind of set of circumstances, I would say, foreshadows the Christian gospel or the Christian good news, right? There's this one law that can't be revoked, and then there is something else that happens on top of it. So what's going on? Well, if you think of it like this way, Adam sinned, and he was a representative figure for humanity. And so we stand as sinful people, sinful by nature, under the wrath and judgment of God. So that stands, And so what happens? Well, God, instead of revoking that, he has sent a savior, uh, his son, our Lord Jesus. And so Jesus, he he dies in our place on the cross, giving us peace and forgiveness with God. So so we have salvation, not because we all of a sudden aren't sinners under Adam, but because Christ has provided it for us. It's It's a new way to deal with the problem. And so the apostle Paul summarizes this in 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, uh, but in Christ all will be made alive. So I think there's a bit of foreshadowing here, I see it anyway, for uh, what's to come later as the Christian good news. Okay, so it's a defend yourselves order, verse 13. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Okay, so uh, there's many reversals, and I think the story is written for us to see that these reversals are happening. Before, Mordecai refused to humble himself before Haman. Then Haman had to humble himself before Esther, pleading for his life. Before, um, Mordecai came out and he was dressed in sackcloth and ashes as he mourned. Now he's dressed in royal robes and a crown. Before the people in the city of Susa were mired in confusion. Now they have a total change in attitude. They have light and gladness and joy and honor. So those reversals we are intended to see. Verse 17 And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, so what happens, as this message gets out, the people realize, wait a second, there's a way for us to defend ourselves legally, and so people are rejoicing, Uh, and many people actually turn to the Jewish faith in this moment, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, that's a bit of an ambiguous term, like, what's going on, what does that mean? Um, There's a few different theories about what that means. Here's what I think the most likely scenario is. Is that people have seen Esther and how she has risen? They have seen Mordecai and how he has risen, and they're thinking, "Wow, that that is really interesting." And that is that that God they worship, He must truly be with them. I want to be a part of that. So I assume that that is is what is going on. Uh, nevertheless, there's some ambiguity there, uh, but the, the the plight of the Jews has changed. So we end our look at the text there. This is the word of the Lord. Speak God. Okay, so before we get into today's um, uh, application, I want to put in a a little footnote, a significant footnote. And I guess it's not a little footnote, it's bigger than that. Let's call it a leg note. It's bigger. (laughs) Um, uh, We're getting into some tough things here. There is blood, there is war, there is annihilation order, there are people defending themselves... And uh, also, as we've been going through this series, some of you have probably been thinking about, wait a second, how does this story interact, if at all, with current events in the world as we have a a war between militant terrorists, Hamas, and uh, the political state of Israel, right? And so how does this intersect with that? And so my footnote is this. I'm actually going to talk about that a bit more in depth next week. And so we're going to look at that. I will say, however, that uh, a lot of the information people receive about what is going on uh, is is only a part of the story. There's a lot of misinformation about what's going on. So part of the big challenge with all this stuff is is rabid oversimplification on both sides of a conflict like this. People also wonder, wait a second, is the Israel in the Bible the same as political Israel uh, now, not so fast. That, too, is an oversimplification. So I'm going to get into that. Are there any touch points in the story? How do we think about conflict uh, through the lens, specifically a Christian lens, through the crucified and risen Jesus? So we're going to get into that a bit more next week because next week all this stuff, that the rubber's going to hit the road with the original law and the follow-up law. So just kind of put that in that category. We will address it uh, next week. Uh, But today we're going to focus more specifically on the providence of God uh, in a situation, in a turn of events like this. And as I mentioned at the start, there is a time when it's tempting, it's easy to believe in providence when things are great, but what about when things are difficult, things are messy, things are feeling like they're in the trenches. And so I'm going to put that word up there, trenches, because uh, this is our key word. What about when things are in the trenches, when things are messy, when there is sin, when there is moral ambiguity, uh, when there is difficulty, when there is pain? Is God still providentially present and working even when things are less than ideal? Okay? Just look at some of the messes in today's story. Okay? Young virgins are summoned for a, dark, a sort of dark, horrid beauty contest. Because Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman, a plot is hatched to kill not only Haman but all Jews. Esther decides to approach the king to change the law, to annihilate her people at great risk to her own life. If I perish, I perish. Haman is discovered to be against Mordecai and is impaled on a 75 foot pole. The blood flows. A wide-reaching annihilation order for the Jews remains intact because it is an irrevocable law. A new law is passed that Jews can take up arms and defend themselves when people come hunting, not only for their lives, but for the lives of their women and children and have permission to plunder their goods. Sounds all very neat and tidy. Not. At no point in this stuff does God say, Whoa. This is all really messy. I'm just going to wash my hands of this, step back. You can figure this all out. And when it's clean and nice and tidy again, I'm going to wade back into the picture and put on my sovereign crown. So. The thing we need to remember and focus on as we reflect on this story, but also our own lives, is that God is in fact with his people in the trenches, right? So we all know Psalm 23, we love it, the Lord is my shepherd. A lesser known psalm is Psalm 24, and the first verse of that psalm, right after Psalm 23, is this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Okay, the earth is the Lord's and everything thing in it. This includes trenches. This includes our moments of difficulty and darkness and challenge, right? God is not put off by the trenches in his own battle zone, God is not put off by the trenches in his own battle stone. I'm not saying that the trenches, metaphorically, that you live through and are dealing with are good. I'm not saying that. They're difficult. They're bad. They're painful. There's sins. Sometimes something has happened to you that may be no fault of your own, and you're dealing with the consequences. Maybe you put yourself there. Maybe it's difficult. Maybe it's painful, and I'm sure it is. I'm not saying the trenches are good, but what I am saying is that God works in the trenches. And this is one of the takeaways that we need to kind of have deep within us as we think about the providence of God. The Great Commission, the end of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus says, I will be with you sometimes. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Always, always. The victories, the defeats, and the trenches. Jesus, one of his names in the early part of Matthew's Gospel, Emmanuel, it means God with us In the victories, the defeats, and also in the trenches. I reference Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, right? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And that is true, whether it's the victories or the defeats, and it's true in the trenches. And this is something that we see play out in the Bible time and time again, and this is instructive for us. One of the examples is Joseph right? Uh, Genesis, uh, Joseph, he's betrayed by his brothers. He's, he's, he's thrown into a pit. Uh, they, they tell his dad that he's dead. They sell him into slavery in Egypt. Over a course of a long period of time, he rises up through the ranks. Eventually, back in his home and native land in Canaan, there's a famine. His brothers come groveling to Egypt. He reveals himself that he's the brother that they sold into slavery. But in that, Joseph sees the providential hand of God. What does he say? Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, you planned evil for me, but God planned it for good to bring about the current result, the survival of many peoples. Wow. God was active in Joseph's trenches and God is active in your trenches. Or what about the Apostle Paul? The guy has uh, authorization to hunt down and kill Christians until Jesus himself confronts him on the road to Damascus. This totally changes his life. His name goes from Saul to Paul. He becomes one of the greatest evangelists the world has ever known. He's written many of the books in the New Testament. God was active in Paul's trenches, and he is active in your trenches. And the ultimate example is the cross. What happened to Jesus, our Savior? He's betrayed. He's abandoned. He's stripped. He's mocked. He's, he's whipped, a crown of thorns goes onto his head, uh, blood runs down his face, uh, nails into his into his hands and into his feet. He is speared in the side, he is publicly mocked. And because of what he has done for us, we are given forgiveness and peace with God. Anyone who will come to him, and this is a free and perfect gift. We're made right with God because of his obedience, not because of ours. Right, And this is a triumph over sin, death, darkness, Satan himself. God works in the trenches of the cross, and God works in your trenches as well. John Ortberg says it well. God can use even the wrong road to bring you to the right place. That's beautiful. God can use even the wrong road to bring you to the right place. We might think it's the wrong road sometimes, and maybe it's a bad road But whatever it happens to be, God can bring us to the right place. Now, a part of this is trusting that God, as he works in the trenches, he has a timeline, and it might be different than what you want the timeline to be. In fact, I would go so far as to say this. It's not trusting God's timeline if you give him a deadline. It's not trusting God's timeline if you give him a deadline. So you're in the trenches, things are difficult. You're trying to trust in the providential... Hand of God. If 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 we think that He has to work by our deadline, uh, that's not really the same thing, right? It's difficult, but it's a part of the reality. So we have deadlines, we have watches, we have schedules, all these things. You can sync up your calendars online, all these things. But and I get that, right? Teachers have deadlines. Hey, that test is on Tuesday at two. Um, employers have deadlines. Hey, you got to get that information in because we need that third quarter report to go out to the stakeholders. Even in homes, you know, Sally, you got to be home by 6. So your sister has the car to get to gymnastics. Like, we get that. But it's different with God. It's not trusting God's timeline if you give him a deadline. right? You Think of today's story. So, as I've said, this, this whole story takes course over a long period of time. How much time has passed, by the time we get to chapter 8, from those first feasts by King Ahasuerus? Ten years have passed. That's a long time. How much time has passed since Esther first became queen in this moment? Six years. It is a long time. So we need to trust God's timeline as he works. But God does work in the trenches. So finally, I just encourage you to think of your own trenches. Uh, and they're going to be different for, for different people. And difficulties, and I've, known, I've come to know many of you over the years. And um, there's difficulties, there's less than ideal situations, uh, sometimes you have short-sightedness and you're dealing with long-term uh, ramifications. Sometimes someone else has done something. Sometimes someone you love and trust and it's put you in a trench and you're in a battle. Uh, maybe you're in a battle for someone you care about and life has become so messy and it kind of makes you sick. It's so difficult. So there's a variety of trenches, but the thing we need to keep in mind today, and I just encourage you, this is a suggestion, it's, it's a challenge, uh, but it's my invitation to you. It's quite simply to trust that God is in your trenches, that He's in your trenches, not just people's trenches and your, your trenches. Ours is a God of providence. Final thought. Uh, in World War One, there was a, a troop, and they're engaged in trench warfare. So, World War One, think you know, 1914 to 1918. And there's this young lieutenant, and they're in the trench, and they're getting ready for the surprise night attack. They all got all suited up, these young men. And they start launching, you know, running across the field, but they end up being the ones who are surprised. So all of a sudden, gunfire, rifles going off, everything retreat. Like, Anyway, so they go back uh, to safety to their own trench. And this, you know, after the rifles stop, there's this eerie silence that just falls on, on them and everything. And, like, there's the moonlight, a little bit of mist, the only thing anyone can hear is the moaning of one of their comrades who is out there, and he has been wounded by gunfire. He's out there, and uh, one of the guys in the troop, a young man named Greg, went to the young lieutenant and said, uh, like, I've got to go get him. Like, I got, I've got to go help him. And the lieutenant's like, no. He keeps asking, no, no, I'm not going to do it. Um, and he just keeps being persistent, and the lieutenant's like, That guy there, he's he's as good as dead, and I don't want to lose two soldiers, so no, you can't go. And so Greg is just persistent and persistent, and finally the lieutenant uh, gives in. He says, okay, if you want to get yourself killed, go ahead. I'm tired of listening to your whining. Go and get yourself killed if that's what you want to do. And so Greg gets his stuff on, and he goes out in the middle of the night, inch by muddy inch, and he finally gets to his friend, grabs him by the arm, and slowly pulls him muddy inch by muddy inch back to safety. And his friend said one thing to him. He said, I knew you'd come. I knew you'd come. Now, why did he say, I knew you'd come? Well, the answer is simple. It's because that's what friends do. Do you want to know what Jesus calls his disciples in John 15? Friends. When you are in the messy battles of life, God comes for you. No, he never left. Why? Because ours is the God of angel armies. Ours is a God of friendship, loyalty, and courage. Ours is a God of the trenches. Praise be to God. Amen.